Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and The Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Notes from the Middle Ground, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is David French. We are delighted to have David. He is of, well, lately of the Dispatch. Now he is a columnist for the New York Times, and people call columns must read. I recommend David's columns by saying it is sheer enjoyment to read his columns, okay? So how's that for a recommendation? All right. So I'm in good spirits this week because we averted default, among many other good things that are happening in the world. This is making me quite cheerful because all of the commenting world was worried that though we've had these perils of Pauline moments before uh, and always managed to avert them at the last possible moment, you know, we were worried that maybe this time, particularly with this crew of Republicans in the House, that maybe this time they really would go over the cliff. And instead, we have something like business as usual, something like normality in politics. So, David French, I'm going to start with you. One thing that comes out of this is the question, I think Semaphore put it very explicitly. They said, has Washington misjudged or underestimated, I think is the word they use, Kevin McCarthy? What do you think about that? Does he deserve a second look as somebody who has pulled something off here? Yes and no. I think the the reality is, along with a lot of Republicans, is they did not go to Washington to be Trump's stooges. That is the last thing that they had on their mind when they were elected to be members of Congress, with the exception of some of the more recent, the Boberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens, who were elected to be purely Trumpist and MAGA. You have a large number of Republicans who are there who didn't want to be and didn't go to be just part of this reactionary populist movement. They actually want to govern. The problem is, as we've seen, and why I'm, it's one hand clapping instead of two hands clapping, is that when there is an actual rubber meets the road conflict between the MAGA demands and their own instincts towards governance, they've yielded again and again and again to MAGA demands. And so, you know, it remains to be seen if there is a second Trump term, what kind of speaker is McCarthy? I suspect we would not like the answer very much at all. But this is a reminder that an awful lot of Republican members of Congress weren't elected for performative reasons. And when they have an opportunity to engage in non-performative governance, they'll take that opportunity. So, Damon Linker, what about, though, the view that was widespread that McCarthy was a hostage to the far right of his party, to the so-called Freedom Caucus, because they had extracted all of these concessions from him and including that he could be removed at any time? Some of the members of the Freedom Caucus are shouting and claiming betrayal and so forth. But doesn't look like McCarthy's really going to face a threat to his speakership, does it? Well, not with the margin that the bill passed the House. I mean, I was kind of shocked by how solidly this thing passed. Uh, you know, a lot of Republicans went along with this. And you did have a really solid, strong showing on the kind of center-leaning side of 
both parties to just get this thing passed. And so given that, no, I don't really see the bomb throwers getting their way and exacting revenge against McCarthy for daring to make a deal with the Biden devil. The whole thing illustrates in a complicated way something that I wrote about on my Substack sort of recently about the way the Republican Party is not only fighting between extremists and more moderate folks with the Trumpist faction, if you will, increasingly powerful, but there's also a different dimension to it between ideological commitments and the non-ideological or tribalistic commitments. And the extremist faction, the didn't want this deal. And, you know, some of them wouldn't have wanted any deal who sort of wanted to go off the fiscal cliff, almost just to see how much damage they could do to Biden. Those folks are kind of divided between, you could say, Freedom Caucus dead-enders, people who are like Tea Party-style radical libertarians who just want to starve the federal beast on anything and everything. There's some people like that still there who are motivated by that kind of club for growth, destroy as much federal spending as we can without almost regard for content, just cut, cut, cut. But then there are other people like Trump himself who are in favor of just sowing chaos. They're the ones who want to just go over the cliff just to see what happens and how much they can hurt Biden. Their attitude is, hey, Biden's at like 41% approval. If we do this and tank the economy, he might be down at like 36% in six months, and then we'll be in much better shape for the next election to really clean up. That's not an ideological concern. That's about trying to just win and gain as much power as ruthlessly and almost nihilistically as possible. And it's confusing because both of those types are both on that extremist fringe, but their motives are actually quite different. And what you saw, I think, in the final vote tally in the House is that, you know, the party is also divided between those folks and then others who sort Sort of her like, you know what? Pragmatism maybe gets a bad name. We actually can fight battles for things we care about more effectively if we don't spend the next three or four or eight or however many weeks. There's only so much we can get out of this. And that's not a particularly ideological instinct either. So I guess the final thing I'll say is that this all, I think, illustrates that the Republican Party today is actually much less driven by ideological commitments than it once was. And that doesn't mean it's worse automatically or better, but clearly it's becoming something else and we haven't seen its kind of final stage of development quite yet. Bill Galston, let's talk about the president. He was pretty clear-eyed, according to the press reports, about the danger to him if a default actually happened. He understood quite clearly that though Republicans might get blamed somewhat, it would still splash back on him because he's the president. And no matter what, presidents get blamed for bad outcomes. And so he approached these negotiations with that in mind, that any sort of deal pretty much would be a win for him. And then he got a much better deal than even he might have expected. And he instructed all of his aides and allies, don't boast. So what is your evaluation of this whole thing, and particularly of how Biden handled it? 
He's a political realist and a pretty good negotiator. Those are his strengths. He has beliefs, but he's not ideologically rigid in as he tries to uh, transmute those beliefs into actual policy. He is an experienced negotiator. I don't think it's any accident, comrades, that when there was negotiating to be done during the Obama administration, in the end, it was always Vice President Joe Biden who was sent to carry it out, in part because of his knowledge of the Senate, in part because he had the kind of temperament to do it. And Obama didn't, let's not forget. Well, yes. uh, (laughs) But the fact that Obama didn't necessarily mean that Joe Biden did. No, no, that's fair. Yeah, right. This kind of situation plays to his strengths. Another strength, I believe, is his instinctive opposition to the demonization of other individuals Mm -hmm. or of the other party. Now, I can't say he's always been pure as the driven snow, in carrying out that belief, and he goes over the top sometimes and succumbs to temptation. But by and large, he has never regarded people on the other side of the table as per se illegitimate. And it's clear that he was eager from day one to send the message to Kevin McCarthy that he viewed McCarthy as a legitimate dialogue partner, whatever their disagreements, and that he was not going to use specific disagreements, even with hardline Republicans, as a shillelagh to beat <laughs> Republican negotiators over the head with. I also have to say that McCarthy responded in kind by choosing serious people to head up the negotiation for the Republicans and by going out of his way to praise the president's mm-hmm. negotiating team. So somehow, The president's refusal to demonize the Republicans had the benign effect of inducing the Republicans not to try to demonize him and not to pick a hostile team just to make a political point. So a lot of Democrats have been bashing Biden for his allegedly old-fashioned and obsolete views about the possibility of discussions across party lines. I would say that if you take what happened legislatively last year and combine it with the outcome uh, of the debt ceiling talks, maybe it's time for those critical Democrats to re-examine their criticism. Linda, To pick up on Damon's point about ideology and what people believe, the extremist burn-it-all-down wing of the Republican Party doesn't, it seems to me, you could argue, does not so much have ideological beliefs as it has a mood. And the mood is aggression, anger, let's play upon feelings of betrayal, And in fact, the word betrayal has already been used by Chip Roy in an interview with Glenn Beck. And you had a number of the hardcore Freedom Caucus types, and they are probably going to go back to the Steve Bannon show and whatever and promote the idea that now Kevin McCarthy is the dreaded establishment, etc., But doesn't it feel to you, I don't know, maybe you disagree, but it feels to me as if this was a real setback for that brand of politics for the Republicans. Kevin McCarthy 
transcended them. Yeah, and you, too optimistic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, no, not too optimistic. And in fact, the genuine look of joy on Kevin McCarthy's face as he emerged was something to behold. I mean, he was clearly really pleased at this victory, and I do think he deserves credit in being willing to sit down, being willing to appoint people who were competent to be part of the negotiating team. And it wasn't just the president's team that was competent. I think there was competence on the part of the Republicans. He didn't put bomb throwers on the team who would be there just to disrupt it. And one of the things that I think we forget is that people who want and aspire to leadership in either house of Congress are generally people who want to get things done. And Kevin McCarthy is going to become the face of the apostate, the person who has rejected the faithful base when it comes time to talking on the Steve Bannon show. It's much the same role that Mitch McConnell assumed in the United States Senate. Mitch McConnell was the guy that got through and totally transformed the judiciary of the United States and moved it to the right, much to the liking of the Bannonites and others, but he's given no credit for it. And I suspect that Kevin McCarthy is going to become a target of the far right. But I also think it's important to look at what happened within the Democratic caucus. I mean, you had, what, 46 members of the progressive caucus who voted no on the bill, led by Pramila Jayapal. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was not far behind. But those 46 members of the progressive caucus are also way out of step with America, way out of step with their own party. And I don't know what they think they are accomplishing by trying to rain on President Biden's parade. He's going to be the nominee. And I think their actions were very destructive. And we spend a lot of time focusing on the problems on the right, but there are problems on the left in the Democratic Party as well. Well, and just as with some of the more radical Republicans, these Democrats come from very safe blue districts Correct. themselves. So they are kind of untouchable. But David French, I'm going to come back to you. Some of these aspects of the deal strike me as just complete common sense, like clawing back some of the unspent COVID funds. Who could be against that? But just to get into the weeds a tiny bit, this whole narrative about the IRS that was promoted by the right, that, you know, there are going to be 87,000 armed IRS agents who are going to come knocking on your door at midnight and, you know, confiscating your wedding rings and so forth. I mean, it was just preposterous. Maybe the amount that was allocated for the IRS was too much. They've taken some of that away, and maybe that'll all be fine in the end. But you could interpret it as the Republicans just went to bat for making it a little bit harder for the IRS to go after tax cheats in the wealthy upper 1% of the population, whereas they did insist upon more stringent work requirements for Medicaid recipients. How would you answer that? So if you're looking for an IRS defense, you've come to the wrong <laughs> panelist here. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. 
My family was subject to the IRS adoption audits during the Obama administration when the adoption tax credit was made refundable for a brief period of time. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of adoptive parents received an IRS audit. Outrageous. Yes. For no good reason. Yeah. And we have seen the disparity in the way that IRS does its auditing. So, for example, the very wealthy tend to have a lower audit risk than a lot of middle class and working class families. So I think there's a lot of room for IRS reform. I am not so sure that dumping a bunch of money on the IRS is exactly the kind of reform that we need. So I've never been quite comfortable with this idea that says that we need to revamp the IRS by pouring money all over it. I'm much more interested in how are we going to revamp the IRS by reforming it? And if that involves some additional money, I'm open to it, but I'm very interested as to what it precisely it's going to fund. So for example, if I'm doing my taxes and I call the IRS, you might have hours and hours and hours and hours of wait time. I'm all in favor of reallocating resources to where people can actually talk to a live human being when they have good faith questions about their taxes. I'm not necessarily in favor of just backing up a dump truck full of money and saying, this is how we're going to fix the problems with the audit process and how we're going to fix tax cheats. Because quite frankly, I'm not quite sure that the IRS has earned our trust mm. to that extent. My goodness, we have leaks of people's confidential tax information, and we just gloss right over that. We've had targeting of, and I represented Tea Party groups during the Obama era. We did, in fact, have targeting of groups ideologically. So I'm very skeptical of this idea that we just need to throw tens of billions of more dollars to the IRS. Okay. I would just add, by the way, that while it may be a great idea to have more phone advisors available for taxpayers who have questions, one other reform really ought to be that when those advisors give advice over the telephone to taxpayers, that taxpayers be able to rely upon it because it has been held, has it not, that you cannot say as an excuse for filing the wrong amount that this is what the agent told you was okay. Well, you know, it's so broken. I mean, don't don't get me started on this, Mona, but you got me started. It's so broken. So for example, normally when the government is going to accuse you of wrongdoing, they bear the burden of right. proof, right? So if I'm going to be sued by the government, then the government's going to have to prove its case with a preponderance of the evidence. If I'm prosecuted criminally, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. But in the tax situation, Often the burden of proof is flipped around. I bear the burden mm. of proving my honesty, the rightness of my taxes, et cetera, rather than the IRS bear the burden of proving my dishonesty. And so there's a lot here that I have concerns about. And as an institution, there are thousands and thousands of honest, hardworking IRS agents who are doing good work and often under-resourced and often understaffed. I get it. I absolutely get it but also there have been many, many abuses. And so what I want to do is before I'm going to drop a bunch of money on an enforcement organization in the United States government, I want to reintroduce proper notions of civil rights protections and due process protections into that entity before I'm going to just put its enforcement ability on steroids. Okay. With that, let us now turn to what is happening in the Republican Party. We had a number of interesting things this week. We have a few new entrants into the presidential race, of course, which we'll come to. I'd like to begin with the amazing story out of Texas, where the Republican-controlled House impeached the Attorney General, Ken Paxton, 
by a wide margin, and he has been temporarily removed from his post pending trial in the Senate. And this happened despite warnings on Truth Social from former President Trump, who sided with Paxton and warned lawmakers that he would come after them if they voted to impeach. So, Linda Chavez, your thoughts about all of this? Well, Ken Paxton has been in a whole lot of trouble for a very long time. He was also, is also, I believe, still under indictment. And everything he's been accused of sounds very much like just plain old-fashioned vanilla corruption, bribery, and malfeasance in office. And I think it's rather amazing that his colleagues in the legislature impeached him at the expense of offending Donald Trump and Senator Ted Cruz, who also came to Paxton's defense. But it is a good sign. I mean, it does suggest that there are some things that go too far, even for the MAGA Republicans. And certainly the legislature in Texas is filled with such creatures. Of course, it's the House that impeaches and the Senate will have to actually try him. And there is a wrinkle in that. Ken Paxton is married to a sitting Texas senator. And how effective she's going to be in marshalling her colleagues to vote, as we saw in the Senate of the United States, not to convict in two presidential impeachments. I mean, it may end up that he will survive this, but I was stunned because there have been calls for him to step aside. He's been sued. He's got these indictments. And the guy looks like he is just thoroughly corrupt. Oh, I don't even know if thoroughly corrupt can capture (laughs) the level of this guy, Linda. Okay. So Damon, I'm going to come to you. So Yeah, he is married to Senator Angela Paxton, but here's another wrinkle. Most of the accusations against him concern misusing his office and his power on behalf of a big donor who is a local real estate developer named Nate Paul, who has a history of bankruptcies and lawsuits and all kinds of problems. And he did some renovations for Mr. Paxton's home. And but not only that, one of the favors he seems to have done for Attorney General Paxton was hiring Paxton's mistress to, <laughs> on his payroll. So now we have another interesting layer of this. How will Mrs. Paxton feel about that particular allegation against her husband? Oh, wait, wait, wait till uh, her lover is brought in for testimony <laughs> on the other side. I, I don't know. I will say, though, that... It is easy for us when we spend all the time we do analyzing and criticizing the Trumpification of the Republican Party. We emphasize the kind of policy deviations that this dispensation tends to support. We, of course, highlight Trump's reckless disregard for the rule of law when it comes to uh, enhancing his own power and the flagrant lying and so forth. But we should not lose sight of the fact that another aspect of this form of politics that Trump champions and exemplifies is 
the most base level of political corruption, just flagrant tribalistic defense of people who are loyal to you. And then you just turn your eyes, avert your gaze as they use their offices to enrich themselves, further their own power. And that's perfectly okay. And so I was mildly cheered that even a balanced bipartisan body like the Texas legislature, uh, (laughs) they're saying, you know what? He's one of ours, but this goes too far. We're taking a stand on this. This has to stop. And who were the big people to stand up in his defense? Well, of course, Trump, as you noted, but also Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. He doesn't care. The local elected officials in his own state are willing to stand up and say, this guy has to be out of here. But Ted Cruz will rise to his defense. And that's very Cruz of him. He doesn't seem to be very interested in actually being a senator anymore. He cares more, it seems, about launching zingers into the political system and and having a podcast. So, you know, we see yet another vision of the two Republican parties here. I do think it is a modestly cheering fact that Texas Republicans uh, still will find certain forms of egregious corruption, even by their own tribe, to be just too much and take a stand against it. And that is a cause for hope, because if we're going to pull back from the brink in this country and from the Republican Party's brink of, of kind of becoming ever more sleazy, part of it is going to require the awareness that, wow, you know, sometimes that which advances the power of my own side is not okay. (laughs) There are certain (laughs) principles and thresholds and expectations that still have to abide, even if you're a Republican. David, one of the effects of having someone so corrupt as Trump be the party standard bearer is that when it's clear that you can get away with anything as long as you're a loyalist, it attracts the lowest common criminals to your cause because they have an interest in that get out of jail free card and you circle the drain pretty quickly. One of the things that happened here is that some of these members of the Texas House up until now, they'd been willing to look the other way, but it, you know, Paxton was sued by some former employees, and there was a fine of three million dollars or something. And what Paxton was demanding was that the legislature pay his personal fine. And one of the members said, "You know, that makes us complicit." I don't know whether this will be a harbinger of a, a new sort of line drawing, but it sure is encouraging, right? Yeah, I've long been of the view that if you're looking at reforming the extremes of our parties, right has to reform right and left has to reform left. Yes. When right attacks left or left attacks right, you tend to have the tribal rallying that distorts the whole analysis. So when you have the GOP disciplining the GOP, that is an unmitigated good. And it's important to note with Ken Paxton that it's hardly the case that he always had the whole conservative world at his back because If you go back and you look at, there was a number of very conservative attorneys working in the AG's office who blew the whistle on him, who the reason for the $3.3 million settlement was because of their litigation. And so this was conservatives blew the whistle on Ken Paxton. And then it was conservatives in the legislature who voted to impeach Ken Paxton. And so this actually kind of 
in an interesting way, Mona, reminds me of some of the divisions that we saw in the debt ceiling deal, where you have a still existent responsible right that is often cowed and intimidated and becomes complicit in a lot of the worst excesses. But every now and then it gets a spine every now and then it asserts itself. And so we saw at the federal level, the responsible right asserting itself in the debt ceiling deal at the state level. We've seen the responsible right asserting itself with Ken Paxton. And now we just got to hope that that spinal transplant takes (laughs) that we don't have a situation where once again, as soon as that responsible right faces strong pushback from the irresponsible right, that it doesn't capitulate again. It doesn't surrender again, but it does exist. Its problem in the last several years has been its lack of courage, its complicity, but there are still Republicans who long for normalcy. They long for a more rational and sane party. They've just rarely had the guts to assert their will. Bill Galson, maybe the demise of Tucker Carlson has been encouraging to some people on the right that they don't have to fear that their voters are going to see that vicious propaganda every night. Who knows? But I'd like you to reflect on anything you've already heard, as well as that next week we're going to have two new entrants into the presidential contest, Mike Pence and Chris Christie. Though DeSantis has been taking swipes at Trump, sort of, they are always veiled. They're always a little too subtle. Instead of saying Trump lost the 2020 election, he'll say he regrets that the Republicans have become ensnared in a culture of losing. So how do you (laughs) feel about all this? Well, before I get to all this, I'd like to go back for a minute to all that otherwise known as the Ken Paxton affair. I spent 10 years in Texas, and I have to say that very little of this surprises me, uh, except for conduct that is outrageous even by Texas standards. For example, early in his elective political career, a colleague of Mr. Paxton's was going through a metal detector and accidentally left his Mont Blanc pen worth $1,000 in one of those bypass trays. And a camera discovered that uh, none other than Ken Paxton, who was online behind him, had pocketed the pen. And the guy was desperate to recover it, but not not until the operators of the camera, you know, made it clear to Paxton that they knew and he'd better return the pen, did he? Yeah, he claimed it was an honest mistake. He thought it was his, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So wallowing in the gutter for just another two minutes, I usually take the high road, Mona. You know that. I do. I'm really amazed. Okay, Bill, let it rip. <laughs> Give me a wallow. Uh, so wallow number two, you know, I believe it was Damon who brought up the mistress issue. Well, Mrs. Paxton has already been questioned about that. And she actually responded quite cleverly. Her definition of marriage is the union of two sinners who have learned the art of forgiveness. So I wouldn't hold your breath before an explosion, you know, on the floor of the Senate about that particular issue. In any reasonable legislature, Mrs. Paxton would have to recuse herself. Don't hold your breath for that either. 
Uh, Wallow number three, the name of Chip Roy has already been uttered. And a little known fact about Roy's career was that he was actually fired by Ken Paxton. And the story behind that is very amusing, but it would take too long to lay out all of the details. But to repeat, even by Texas standards, Mr. Paxton is over the top. Now, turning to the question you posed, as opposed to the answer that I inflicted on you, Mona, (laughs) uh, I think that the entrance of Chris Christie into the race is potentially a really big deal. I don't know whether it's literally true that Chris Christie has just strapped on a suicide vest so he can blow up Trump along with himself. He may actually believe that he has a serious chance for the nomination. But one thing is clear. He has the guts, the intelligence, and the motive to take it to Donald Trump the way nobody else in the race can or will. And it's going to be very interesting to see what happens, you know, when Donald Trump is subjected to the kind of frank, brutal criticism that he has not really heard before from a contender for the the nomination. And uh, a lot is going to depend on how much Trump takes the bait, because Christie, I think, is very good at the takedown game. He already demonstrated that by, as I recall, you know, being the agent of Marco Rubio's demise in 2016. And uh, I am rooting for him to do what he has promised that he will, and I think he will do it. I think that Pence's entrance into the race, by contrast, is sort of a non-event. I can't think of anybody in the race who's less likely to get the nomination at this point, because on the one hand, nobody who really supports Donald Trump will give him the time of day. But on the other hand, the anti-Trump forces, I think, will have all sorts of more attractive options to select from. So you put it all together, and I think in a way it's sad, but Mr. Pence had all sorts of opportunities to separate himself from the president long before he did. And you can regard this as a kind of justice. (laughs) There is, if I understand correctly, a third Republican who's poised to enter the race, Doug Burgum, the two-term governor of North Dakota, who actually has a very interesting story as a highly successful entrepreneur, started a software company in Fargo, North Dakota, to the incredulity of everybody. The Silicon Valley people are still scratching their heads. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But meanwhile, you know, he laughed all the way to the bank with a billion dollar check. uh, And he's founded two other highly successful companies since then, before becoming the governor of North Dakota. He may be a kind of sleeper. He's a traditional Republican. I'm not sure how much of a market there is for traditional Republicanism, but I think he will articulate that creed as well as anybody. Uh, David French, I just would love to hear you on the subject of Chris Christie. <laughs> Chris Christie has, is there something less than no chance? <laughs> but he is a guided missile. And the question is, who is he aimed at? Mm-hmm. He was a guided missile who demolished Marco Rubio, as we remember. He appears to be a guided missile aimed at Donald Trump this time. 
And if that's the case, if he is a guided missile aimed at Donald Trump, he's got some real uses here that if he will actually say things out loud that Republican primary voters either never or rarely hear, because this is really important to highlight for folks is Republican primary voters do not live in your information environment. If you are listening to this podcast, you are not in the information flow of the typical Republican primary voter. And so there's a chance that Chris Christie will have an opportunity to say things that a lot of primary voters just don't hear, haven't heard, aren't aware of, and may have a chance to chip away somewhat. But if Christie becomes a guided missile aimed at another candidate while leaving Trump untouched the way he did in 2016, which I don't think will happen, but is possible, then he could be a wholly destructive force. But one of the things we just have to keep reminding ourselves is there is a whole universe of knowledge about Trump that exists in part of the country that does not exist with Trump's voters. Now, not all of Trump's voters, but with many of Trump's voters, they live in a completely different information environment. And whoever can penetrate through that or can expose them to information that they've not seen I think that can be a net benefit, but we'll see. All right. With that, I would like to turn to the topic that is dominating conversations uh, around the country, namely the threat from artificial intelligence. Uh, We have seen lots of headlines over the last several weeks. Leading researchers and developers of AI are warning that it should be regulated and that it is potentially dangerous, with some going even so far as to say that it represents a risk of extinction of the human race. So here's what the statement, something by the Center for AI Safety, to which belong a number of leading developers of AI. They said, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. So, Bill Galston, I'm going to turn to you first. Is this hysterical or is it reasonable? What do you think? (laughs) The sad fact, Mona, is that people like us just don't know. Mm -hmm. The Congress of the United States doesn't know. Many experts are alarmed, but other experts are less alarmed. And this is why a reputable group recommended, in effect, a six-month pause which might seem to make sense in isolation, except as critics pointed out, the fact that we pause doesn't mean that our adversaries are going to pause. And AI has many potential military uses. And so the US military is very alarmed by the thought of a pause that would allow especially the Chinese to get the jump on us. And one of the things that has always leaned against technology regulation is international competition, particularly international military competition. We really don't know what to do. But in this case, it would be wrong to allow ignorance to lead to paralysis, from which I infer that what we need is a kind of a crash program where the best experts in the country are mobilized to conduct a public conversation that includes the Congress of the United States, and with the objective of coming up 
with the best interim regulation that we can devise at the moment to do all of this very quickly, to try to make government for once work at the speed of business and even more the speed of technology, to treat this as potentially a national emergency that requires all of us to discard our established habits of you know, of study and delay and quarreling. We have an industry that is crying out for regulation. Very, very unusual situation. And I think that we need to create a supply of regulation to meet the demand for it before the genie is really out of the bottle, which it may already be, and we have no choice but to try to deal with the consequences. Linda, is government regulation really the solution here or the necessary path? I mean, who in the government would have the expertise to regulate this wisely? The Commerce Department? The the Pentagon? I mean, who would do that? Right. Why don't they have a consortium of Google and, and Microsoft and the others who are the leaders in this field? Why don't they come together and devise certain standards and protocols and safety measures that they mutually agree to? I mean, I understood that China would not be a party to it, and that's a problem. But what's your sense about this call for the government to do it? Well, I think it's not going to happen. If it were to happen, I don't think the government would necessarily do the right thing. I think we see that government has trouble regulating things that are a lot easier to understand than artificial intelligence. I mean, I just don't have the brain power among government bureaucrats to be able to try to get control of this thing. And I think you're right. Whatever happened to the idea of self-restraint and perhaps those who were involved in creating AI need to get together and decide on their own rules. The problem is, though, that Bill is exactly right. Whatever it is that we do will ultimately not be dispositive because Our enemies are going to be out there working as fast as they can to marshal AI and to do it for the purpose of either waging war or conquering other nations or undermining other nations. And we know that China is heavily involved. And it's not just China, North Korea, Russia, Iran. I mean, there's no end of bad actors in this field. I don't know that I think we are yet on the brink of existential fate here, where we're all going to basically be killed off by machines that we have created. That worries me a lot less than some of the more mundane, quotidian kind of use of artificial intelligence that we see all around us. There was a fascinating piece in the New York Times this week. It's called My AI Lover. And it was about women primarily who develop relationships with a smartphone app called Replica. And what happens to these women, how they get basically seduced by these machines and begin these relationships. What I worry about is the way society is being undermined by artificial intelligence, by our relationships with machines as opposed to each other. 
All of us have our smartphones. We carry them around everywhere. Our smartphones, unless we disable the process, are always listening to us. I'm sure I'm not the first person to notice that I'll have a conversation with one of my grandkids or my husband, and suddenly I start seeing ads that are in some way related to what we've been discussing popping up in my various feeds. So the way in which we have had technology really wreak unbelievable changes in social interaction, in our relationships, within our family, within friends, within our communities, that already is, I think, something to worry about. We had the CDC come up and talk about how harmful social media was for for young people, young girls in particular. But it's not just the idea that these machines are going to create weapons that are going to destroy us and destroy mankind. It's also the more ordinary ways in which we've allowed technology to take over our lives. So that's my sort of pessimistic view. Damon, as Linda points out, we are still struggling with how to handle the technology that we already understand, namely, you know, the internet and all of that. And we haven't adjusted to the changes that it has wrought in our social lives and in our politics in particular. But now let's start by talking about some of the benefits and why people were and are incredibly enthusiastic about it. It has the potential to provide tremendous advancements for human thriving, okay? New drugs to treat cancer, where the machine-based learning can figure out a new drug in a very short amount of time, something that would have taken years to do with just human beings can happen in a month. Robots that will be able to do hazardous jobs like coal mining or sea exploration or rescuing you know, people from mountaintops or whatever it is, Online tutors available 24-7, all kinds of benefits. There's that. But on the other hand, what is scary, and I listened to a podcast with Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some people think he's really over the top. He is firmly of the belief that AI will come into its own. It will be super intelligent, more intelligent than we, he says, we're already there in many respects. And then it will, of course, kill us all because why wouldn't it? I'm not there. But one of the things that he said that did cause me to you know, reflect is that he said, we don't understand how it works. And that is something that should give us all pause, right? Well, sure. I'm all in favor of being given pause about things. And I don't understand enough about it to even grasp what it is people are talking about when they say this is going to destroy the world. Like concretely, what is the chain of events that they are worried is going to happen that an AI is going to become conscious and have goal-directed thinking and activity and deliberately kind of launch all the nukes on the planet at the same time and destroy everything? If that could happen, that would explain how we get to the destruction of the world. Okay. So one thing they point out is that AI has already learned to be deceptive in the pursuit of certain goals. So you know the little CAPTCHA thing? That, you know, says you're really not a robot, Mm -hmm. you're a human. Well, it's learned how to be deceptive and get around that and lie and say, I am human. So 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I get that. Again, it's still a computer. I don't know. It, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense to me that. I mean, Dame. David. Dame. I know David likes <laughs> uh, you know Marvel movies and Battlestar Galactica and things, and so like it's easy to come up with scenarios where the great computer does us all in. But I'm talking about the real world, and I don't see any evidence yet of anything that is. You, you talk tweet. about the need need for uh, regulation or a consortium of the companies themselves to do this. And I totally agree that if this isn't global and somehow policed, then it's meaningless. I mean, it would be the equivalent of in 1943, us deciding, no, the atom bomb is too mm-hmm. dangerous. We refrain from building it. And then, of course, Hitler or Stalin would have built it uh, within the next year or two. And that wouldn't have made the world any less dangerous. So I don't know what the solution is. Other than light bulb goes off, how about a really powerful off switch? If this is a computer mind, then you need to create ways to, if it seems to be becoming dangerous, you flick a switch and it no longer is networked to things that it can actually create great havoc with. I mean, if I want to launch a nuclear weapon from my home computer, I can't do it because I can't figure out how to like get in to the whatever it is, the mainframe, if those even exist anymore, whatever it would be called, like, where are the nuclear codes launched from? Could I get to them from my laptop? I bet not. I hope not. If so, then I guess if I were an AI, I'd be smart enough to figure it out and do that. But I'm not sure why would we allow it access to something that could destroy us? I don't know. I might be the only person here on this podcast who looks at TikTok it is true. And I, I don't do it for the sake of like advancing the Chinese. But I do look at TikTok and I've discovered that there is a kind of subset of people on TikTok who are already using ChatGBT to do incredible amounts of efficient corporate work and making a lot of money doing it already. Oh, yeah. Oh, so. Yeah kind of like corporate marketing and you all you do is have to come up with a really good like paragraph length prompt for chat GPT and say, I'm going to give you the name of a company. I want you to research that company, figure out its client base, all the products it uses, how best to market them and come up with a business plan for great marketing success. And it will spit out something that you as an individual freelancer working in marketing would take you like a month to come up with. It will come up within five minutes and you can give it to that company and they will pay you for the month's work. If you're very efficient at this and have the right connections, you can turn this into a way to make like a hundred grand a month. Already, this has all been what's less than six months since this has been available. You know, we talk a lot about how populism has arisen from out of the dislocation of the uh, kind of industrial base of the working class by putting people out of work and factory towns and so forth. This has the potential, I think, to be dislocating to white collar work in a similar way. And we have no recent experience of something that traumatizing to the workforce. If a corporation could get by with 10% of its workforce because 
you only have 10% of the people doing 110% of the productivity that all those old employees used to do. That is an astonishing shift and it could happen very, very quickly. So I worry more about that and its political, social, cultural consequences than I do uh, like a war game scenario where the evil AI destroys us all. David French, a couple of prompts for you. One is that, uh, you know, there's that famous example about automated teller machines, it, rather than putting bank employees out of work, actually created more job opportunities for bank employees and banks actually hired more people, not fewer, even though it was feared that it, this would result in job loss. That's also a possibility. But this idea of machines becoming sentient is as old as science fiction, I guess. You know, this famous scene in 2001, A Space Odyssey yes. is sort of typical where it's, you know, the character is trying to go up and disassemble or disable rather uh, HAL, the computer, which by the way is the letters next to IBM. But anyway, he's trying to disable HAL and HAL, the computer says, I wouldn't do that, Dave. <laughs> you know? And Hal knows that Dave is coming after him because he read his lips, even though Dave tried to keep his intentions secret. Anyway, um, your thoughts, Mr. French. I, for one, am ready for the coming AI war. <laughs> I've been studying this matter my entire adult life. I would recommend the, the future documentary or the documentary because it is past, set many thousands of years in the past, which is, of course, Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> But I think we're too pessimistic about AI, to be honest. But I do think there are obvious problems. If you're talking about, for example, military uses, there was this report that came through today. It says U.S. Air Force tested an AI-enabled drone that was tasked to destroy specific targets. A human operator had the power to override the drone. And so the drone decided that the human operator was an obstacle to its mission and attacked him. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a very primitive AI, to be honest. It's a very primitive AI. If you read the story, it, it decided because it was programmed so straight ahead to destroy specific targets, then it realized that there was a factor inhibiting its ability to destroy targets. It turned on that, which is all quite simplistic when you think about it. But I tend to think that there's going to be a lot of upside to AI and a lot of downside, as with any major technological advance. And as with any major technological advance, the idea that we can somehow pass a series of government regulations to channel it in exactly the right ways, I think is kind of a pipe dream. I've heard some AI proponents say some pretty compelling things about how, for example, if you take an entire universe of people who are well below average in their writing skills and their communication skills. What AI does immediately is put you at least average in your communication skills and your writing skills. And so now on highly technical areas, it's AI is just laughably bad right now. So for example, in my world of constitutional law, do not ask ChatGPT about constitutional law. Do not ask ChatGPT about law at all. I think you saw that there was a CNN story where an attorney has apologized and is being sanctioned for writing a brief that contained a number of completely fictional <laughs> yes. cases that were generated by ChatGPT. <laughs> and then my favorite part of the story is that he goes back and he says, hey, I tried to do my, you know, I tried to ver validate it by asking ChatGPT again <laughs> if this was okay. So I think a few things. One, 
the idea that we can internationally, multinationally regulate AI in a way that's going to be rational and sensible and give us all the benefits and minimize the downside is we just haven't been able to do that with tech before. Even going back to the printing press, technological revolutions just happen. Yep. B, I do think there are real dangers to it, but also C, I don't think we've been talking enough about the upsides. It's going to make an awful lot of people a lot better at their jobs. And when the AI is better, you're going to see a lot of the normal churn of human mistakes that we all make just by being human <laughs> begin to be smoothed out in some pretty important and critical areas. So I think there's a lot of upside to AI. I think that downsides are obvious. Everyone's talking about them, and I don't think we should minimize them. But I think if it's possible, we might be minimizing the upsides. I think there are real considerable upsides to it. But I'm ready if it goes bad. I'm I'm absolutely ready. <laughs> all right. Very good. Thank you all. And uh, of course, we'll continue to watch this. And no doubt, it will continue to watch us. And with that, let us turn to our final segment, highlight or low light of the week. I will start with you, Bill Galston. Well, my low light of the week, alas, is the re-election of Turkey's longtime leader, and now I fear a leader for life, Mr. Erdogan. He manipulated every possible sector of Turkey's institutions and civil society in order to bring about a narrow election victory, which was technically free, but in no respect fair. Erdogan is now playing a completely destructive role, not only in his own country, you know, which he's dragged to the depths of economic collapse with his absurd fiscal and monetary policy. He's also blocking Sweden's accession to NATO. You know, he is enabling the Russians in various ways, while at the same time holding his hand out to the United States for additional high-tech weapons. I don't know what to do about him. The Turkish people have been unable to get rid of him despite valiant attempts, not once but twice in recent years. But he is a permanent and growing problem. It's going to get worse if he stops cooperating with Europe on the refugee crisis, which he could anytime he wants, throwing Europe back into turmoil at the very worst possible time. So his reelection by about four points is really bad news for us and for the world, in my opinion. Okay, thank you. Linda Chavez. Well, that's depressing. Maybe we can just hope he's old and he will pass on from this earth at some point, Bill. I'm going to point to another low light. And that was a matter that came up before a district court in Texas. We've talked many times on the program about the fate of DACA. These are the young people who were brought to the United States by their parents illegally, who were given legal status, allowed to work, go to school, etc. During the Obama years, uh, there have been lots of efforts on the part mostly of Republican governors and attorneys general in various states to try to overturn the DACA program. It's gone all the way up to the Supreme Court, back down to the appeals court, and this week it was back in the district court with the original judge who ruled it illegal, ruling that the president, that time Obama, had not gone through the 
proper administrative steps to be able to give these young people legal status. Well, that case, which again went back up to the appeals court, but then was pushed back down after the Biden administration tried to satisfy the requirements of actually issuing rules and regulations on the DACA program, it was back in court this week. We don't know how it's going to come out. It could come out any day, but everybody believes that Andrew Hannon, the judge in that case, who has been very hostile to DACA recipients, is likely to rule that the Biden administration did not solve the problem And then we will have some 800,000 young people, many of them in the military, serving in jobs, in school, going on about their lives. These young people will be subject to removal from the United States. And all this is because the United States Congress has refused to deal with the problem and has refused to pass legislation that would give these young people legal status. And some of them are pretty old at this point, right? I mean, they've been living yes, here. Yes, some of them are in their 30s, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. No, incredible, so. incredible. All right. And, and I mean, our doctors, lawyers. Yeah, teachers and all the rest, yeah. Okay, Damon Linker. Carlos Lozada uh, was the longtime Washington Post book critic. I think did a really fabulous job there. Uh, he's now at the New York Times where he writes occasional opinion columns that are basically kind of synoptic book reviews. He often takes a theme and talks about several books, some of them new, some of them older, and builds it out into a lengthy opinion column. His latest is really good. It's titled, Men Have Lost Their Way, Josh Hawley Has Thoughts About How to Save Them. It's ostensibly a review of uh, Josh Hawley's new book called Manhood, the masculine virtues America needs. But as Lozada usually does, he brings in other things, including Richard Reeves's very good 2022 book of Boys and Men. We've talked about that here on the podcast uh, with Mr. Reeves himself. He bends over backwards. This is Lozada, bends over backwards to be fair to Hawley, treats him as a good faith converser on this subject. I think that's a questionable assumption, but it, as often is the case, it's a very valuable one in terms of creating goodwill for the reader, because when he does hit Holly for the defects of the book, which he certainly does, it carries more weight because we've had reason to believe that Lozada is a fair-minded reader. So it's a very rich discussion of a very complicated issue that is a critical engagement with Holly, but also uh, shines a light on the bigger theme, which I think is a very important one. So I, I recommend it. Okay, thank you. David French. So my highlight is a low light, and it's actually a piece of reporting. It's from The New Yorker, and it's two weeks on the front lines of Ukraine. It's by Luke Mogelson, and it really illuminates and demonstrates the daily reality of the Ukraine war in a way that a lot of reporting hasn't yet. Not because there aren't reporters willing to report. It's just it's very difficult to get to what's called the zero line in the war. Ukrainian military doesn't do embeds in the way the U.S. military does. The zero line is hell on earth in the places where the fighting is most intense. And it takes enormous courage to do this, just enormous courage. And so 
the highlight is that you have a reporter who's willing to literally lay his life on the line to tell the world about what's actually happening. The low light is the story that is being told. And we just don't have a frame of reference for the kind of combat that is unfolding in Eastern Europe, a modern frame of reference for it. This goes back to World War II, World War I, some of the most intense battles of the Korean War, for example. And it's just so important to tell the world this story. It's so important for the world to understand this story. And it's an incredibly dangerous story to tell. So a tip of the cap to the New Yorker, tip of the cap to the reporter. And I'd say that my own colleagues, there has been some just incredible reporting from my colleagues at the Times, also from the most intense parts of the fight. So I think that being a war correspondent is an indispensable element of journalism, and and we should pay tribute when people demonstrate that kind of bravery. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. Look forward to reading it. All right. I want to mention, there are so many things I could mention this week, but I'm choosing a piece by Nick Kristoff in the New York Times. It's called Mississippi is Offering Lessons for America on Education. And it is so encouraging because we go around and around with, you know, the Democrats saying we need to spend more on schools and Republicans saying, nah, that would just mean more money for your friends, the teachers unions, and we want charter schools or we want choice. But what Mississippi has done, Christoph points out in this long piece, is that they, together with a well-intentioned billionaire who got involved, they have focused on the science of reading, the importance of phonics, and they made it a state policy that they were going to get all children to read. There are certain carve-outs, but it was an all-out effort over the past decade to get all children to read by the end of third grade. And they have, over this course of this decade, they have shown tremendous success And what Christoph points out is that Mississippi is frequently among the dead last in the country in terms of child poverty, hunger, teen births, and other indicia of suffering and deprivation. And yet, among just children in poverty, Mississippi fourth graders now are tied for best performers in the nation on the National Assessment of Educational Progress called the Nation's Report Card. And one of the people that Christoph quotes is an education expert from Harvard, economist, who said it was incredibly exciting. And he said, you cannot use poverty as an excuse. That's the most important lesson. He said, it's so important. I want to shout it from the mountaintop. And what Mississippi teaches is that we shouldn't be giving up on children. This is incredibly, incredibly encouraging 31 states have already passed uh, legislation to mandate phonics teaching. There's still a long way to go, first of all, to get the remaining states on board and also to make sure that it is actually happening. But Mississippi has really gone at it. In addition to their great reading scores, they found that math scores also improve, even though they didn't have any particular program about improving math performance. But they speculate part of doing math is being able to read English, and that also maybe just the kids are learning to apply themselves and it has more global effects. So anyway, it's all very, very encouraging in a realm where we often seem to be spinning our wheels. So congratulations to Mississippi and to Nick Kristoff for bringing that to our attention. 
And with that, I would like to thank our guest, David French. You can read him in the New York Times. I want to thank all my usual panel, our producer, Katie Cooper, our sound engineer, Jonathan Siri, and editing help from Aaron Keene. And of course, our faithful listeners. And we will return next week as every week.